notice they give me a hard time, both privately and publicly, because two weeks ago I dealt with 11 verses, asked him to deal with 21 last week, and I have felt the weight of that for the entirety of the week, so today I'm going to deal with 12 verses. (laughs) Who do you think you are? Isaiah 5 is really helpful for us. We're in the Gospel of Mark today, chapter 12, and you can feel free to go ahead and open your Bibles there. But as you're turning there, it will be beneficial for us to consider what Mark 12 says to us. And I'm not sure for you uh, what your current status in regards to relation, in regard to your relationship is. I look around the room, lots of you are married. Lots of us have plethoras of children. Some of you may still be single or hoping to not be single or you may be content to be single. I'm not exactly sure what's taking place there. I do know that when I was in seminary, there were a group of guys who were weirdos. They were called the seminary and all of them just odd, odd ducks. And most of them were trying to find a wife. Guys outnumber the girls on campus seven to one, so their odds weren't great. Those girls' odds weren't great either when you're considering the clientele they were choosing from. But I can remember I had a friend who was running around the campus one night, and a young man ran up beside her and said to her, Huh, I had planned to go to Bible study tonight, but decided to run... And look at this, I met you. Maybe this is the work of the Lord. And I said, you should tell him he's an absolute weirdo and never have anything to do with him ever. The idea of of interacting with people when you are at that phase where you're dating or attempting to date is one of the strangest things ever. It is an odd, odd place to be. When we look into Isaiah 5, we see language that is... A better version of what this young man was trying to do, and more than likely a way better version of what you attempted to do, gentlemen, when you tried to woo your wife. Because the language here is uh, intending to woo someone. Isaiah chapter 5, and I'm going to read these first few verses. It says this, I will sing about the one I love. A song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now, residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. The the language there is heavily uh, communicating to us the notion of God's love, His covenant love for the people of Israel, His desire to walk with the nation of Israel. That is beneficial to us when we walk into our text today in Mark chapter 12 because Jesus is going to refer back to that Isaiah passage. And as Jesus refers back to that Isaiah passage, He gives us even more of an understanding of the point of Isaiah's prophecy and of what is taking place in the life of Israel and in each and every one of our lives when we interact with the teachings of Scripture. So we read together in in Mark chapter 12, rather. He began to speak to them in parables. A man 
planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it. He dug out a pit for the wine press. He built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him. And they beat him. And they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. Then he sent yet another, and they killed that one. He also sent many, many others. Some they beat, others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent the son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And that inheritance, it will be ours. That inheritance will be ours. So they seized him. And they killed him. And they threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come. He will kill the farmers. And give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him. But they feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and they went away. When Isaiah rounds third base in his reading of Isaiah 5, in his writing of Isaiah 5, in his prophecy, he moves us in a similar direction. He mixes metaphors. It's a conversation about apples and chainsaws. When he moves to verse 4, what more could I have done for the vineyard that I, had, that I, that I did? Why then, when I expected a yield of good grapes, that I yield worthless grapes, now I will tell you what I am about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall. It will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. It will also give orders to, I will give orders to the clouds that the rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, the, plant, the planted he delighted in. He expected justice, but he saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but he heard cries of despair. Yahweh in the book of Isaiah is looking for justice and he finds bloodshed. Yahweh is looking for righteousness and he hears cries of anguish from punished, tortured people. God has set the nation of Israel up to be a reflection of God's real heart for our real world. And in that place, they were not doing the thing that they were supposed to do. Doing nothing is doing something. If we have any big idea or a main takeaway from today, it's this, when it comes to Jesus, there is no neutral for us. You can't be neutral about Jesus. Neutral is negative. 
we align ourselves with Jesus or we are working out of alignment with Jesus. That's how alignment works. You're in, you're out. When you look through the idea of what he is saying to us in this passage, you'll see a breakdown of the passage. If you spent any time with me over the last few years, I say about narrative passages regularly, you usually have a really, you can make a really clean outline out of a messy story, and that's what we have here. Verses 1 through 9, you see the story. Verses 10 and 11, you see the scripture reference. In verse 12, you see the scheme. Isaiah, so far, and I've read his seven verses, he has provided for us a background, an understanding of what God was doing in this passage. It does not determine the meaning of the parable. It prepares our hearts to interact with the meaning of the parable. Because what we're seeing in this text is the tenants are going to be replaced. And the consequences of rejecting Yahweh and who he provides in the air, in the person of Jesus, are horrific. They are horrible. And when you come to the end of that Isaiah passage, and when you come to the end of Jesus' reference to it in this parable, he puts us in the exact same place. He doesn't tell us what to do. We begin to think, what am I supposed to do with this? He's pretty blunt. If, you're, if you know anything about parables, you, you've got a couple of things happening. In lots of parables, parables, they're teaching parables. And when Jesus finishes it, his disciples, standing there in their Columbia fishing shirts, look at him and they say, we don't know what that means. Could you please tell us what that means? I like your fishing shirts, guys. I'm just letting you know. That's the disciples. You and the disciples will get along greatly. I don't know what that means. Can you tell us what you meant by that thing you just said, Jesus? When he comes to the end of this parable, it's not a teaching parable. It's a telling parable. Because he's saying to everyone who overhears, this is what has happened. And because this has happened, this is what God's done. And this is what God will do. You look into this and you see you've got the notion of these various things represented. You you see there's a vineyard and the vineyard in both parables represents the nation of Israel. Do you know who owns the vineyard? God. God. You have the tenants. In this parable that we see in Isaiah, and in, in, or rather in this parable of Mark, and in the prophecy of Isaiah, the tenants are the leaders of the nation, the people who have led poorly and wrongly. The servants in uh, this parable of Jesus, they represent the prophets, the stories that we see about them. And the son, spoiler alert, is the Messiah. He is the one who will deliver everyone. And you see God addressing the problem with these tenants, these religious leaders, and their rebellion against Him. Because they were really, really focused on telling everyone else how to live, and they were missing the way by which God has given them the opportunity to live. They have a passive faith, an informed faith. And a passive, informed faith can lead to active rebellion. You can know a whole lot of things about God and not be living in alignment with God. We can live foreign to to who God would have us to be simply by thinking that knowing God means that we know what the Bible says. The Bible does take us to the person of Jesus. And the Bible shows us how God would have us to live as people who follow Jesus. But if we're just reading it as cold letters on paper... And not seeing that it is intended to move from what we interact with in ink to the way that we are caring for the world in which we live. That's a failed reading of the Bible. We look and we see these teaching parables. Uh, The disciples in the passage are in that very weird place where they are saying, Oh man, he just finished talking to them? 
And he's going to die. And more than likely, we're going to die too. What has he set us up for? So let's just look at it. Verse 1, he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it, and he dug out a pit for a wine press, and he built a watchtower. I love this because verse 1 lets us know that what God has done in providing the nation of Israel is a very intentional thing. What he has done in the prophecy of Isaiah is a very deliberate thing. God has set the nation of Israel and its leaders up for success. He has shown them the way that they should live, the way that they should be a light in the darkness of the world. He has shown them what it means for them to represent Him here. It's not Eden, but it's close. This isn't a utopia. God has done the work. And then He leases it to tenant farmers, and He goes away. By this, it, it is not saying that he has abandoned things. Because when you read through parables, they really have one point they're taking us toward. And it's a deliberate point that you see here. It's letting us know there are people who have been entrusted to care for this thing that God seems to love. And they should care for what God seems to love. These tenant farmers, they, have, they are supposed to, they are intended to have a low power with a high responsibility. Look, you go in, you take care of it, that's the end of it. That's how this works for you. However, they wanted to flip it. They wanted to turn it inside out where they would be people of low responsibility and high power. Everything would be theirs and belong to them. We went, we, we had an experience trip for Christmas this year. We took the kids to this place called Kalahari. We've been before. We went last year. This year, we thought we'd bring other people with us. So all of us go. If you don't know what this is, it's an indoor water park. For two and a half days, I felt like I was trapped inside of a chlorinated pinball machine. <laughs> and you walk in, and, and you are, are really, you just... You get to buy Costco pizza at inflated prices. It's a really, really great experience. And when I go check in, because everyone has moved from a real person helping me at the front desk to artificial intelligence, that's where we are, uh, I'm interacting with a machine, and it begins to fire bracelets out at me. And when I'm receiving the bracelets, it lets me know that to put them on all of my children. And the bracelet looks like this. See, just a... I don't know, like, like an elephant ear or something. This bracelet will get you into your rooms. That's how I did the year before. It'll get you, it'll get you into the fitness center, and no need. It gets, it gets you into everywhere. And this year, they've made a slight alteration to the bracelet. Every bracelet is connected to the card on file of the owner. I don't know if you're keeping math at my house. There are the owners, my wife, myself. There are these four creatures who live there. All of them have the same power that I do. Now, my kids are amazing humans. I love them, and they are wonderful, and they do what they're asked to do with the exception of one. 
my kids, would, we said to them, hey, we, we've put this, you got this bracelet. You got this bracelet. You can get whatever you, just talk to us first. Before you go get that pretzel, ask yourself, do I really want to put dad in debt? <laughs> Before you get those dipping dots, ask yourself, does bad ice cream really taste that good? And they did. They're so good. Before you try to buy your friend a pretzel or a piece of pizza, go find his dad. <laughs> it was mine. I looked at Alder and he's asked for like dipping dot number three on the day. He'd already snuck in a Reese's cup and I'm pretty sure he stole. It's a joke. And I said, you don't need another dipping dot. I said, we, you don't have the money for another dipping dot. And he held his bracelet up and said, yes, I do. It's right here. It's right here. The tenant farmers in this passage are there. They don't see that what they are caring for, what they have power over, does not belong to them. It belongs to someone who has entrusted them, who has gifted them, who has even provided for them, who's made this easy for them. But it's not theirs. You look at the text and they are going to go in and, and they're going to do the strangest thing. God comes and in the passage, a harvest, verse 2, He sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. Why not? Like more than likely it's five years. I think I read that. They should have done some stuff while they were there. There should be some payoff. Doesn't mean that he's not going to bless or care for them. But, they, but when, they, when he sent the guy to get his stuff, that was his stuff. They took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he, he sent another servant to them. And, and they hit him on the head. And they treated him shamefully. And then he sent another and they killed that one. He sent many others. Some they beat and others they killed. Again, these are the prophets. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, we're so glad you're here. The Bible, in the Old Testament, you have these stories of the prophets who were men who spoke on behalf of God. They spoke to the people and said, this is what God would have us as a people to do here 75% of prophecies are this this is the word of the Lord Moses had some prophetic tendencies he, he was almost stoned to death Elijah giving direction to the people uh, he had a death sentence for the entirety of his days hung over his head Isaiah tradition says that this man was cut into two pieces with a saw for trying to direct the nation of Israel. Jeremiah was imprisoned and he was threatened with death. Zechariah was stoned. Micah was killed by the son of the king. Ezekiel was murdered after a sermon. Don't get any ideas. <laughs> Amos was forced to live in a cave. The prophets kept going over and over saying, Hey, we are to be light in darkness... We are to be a representation of God's good order in a world of 
weeds and disaster. But we're not that. Redirect yourself to be that. Murder, kill, stone, hide. He had one to send. A beloved son. You've interacted with the word beloved at some point if you've ever read the Bible that much. Mark uses it three times. Two times it is God referring to Jesus. And here, as Jesus tells the story, he's letting them know that that's me. These men are looking at Jesus wearing their pharisaical wardrobes and they are thinking, who does this man really think he is? And the beauty of this parable is he's telling them. He's telling them who he is while turning the mirror on them and saying, well, who do you really think that you are? Are you functioning in the way that Yahweh would have you to function? Are you interacting in a way that God would have you to interact? Are you living in a way that God would have you to live? Because you are claiming to be representations of this God, yet there's nothing that really looks like this God. The order that is supposed to be there for people who follow after, it's not in you. You're not doing anything or saying anything that really embodies that he's someone that you are in right relationship with. Who do you think you are? Here we refer to Jesus. And when Jesus gets there, the plan goes presumably south. This is the heir. Let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. That's an urban legend that has no root in truth. If we get rid of him... Everything will belong to us. The son, the son does in every scenario in the Bible had the full authority of the father. That's how it worked. The firstborn son did. If we eliminate him, we can take everything and do whatever we want. If he's not here, we get to be in charge. If we eliminate this one, then everything that people do will depend upon us we have a microcosm of the totality of human rebellion right here if we get rid of God we can do whatever we want which in effect means this if we get rid of God we are God So they seized him and they killed him and they threw him out. That's the order Mark gives us. Intentionally tying to the narrative that we find in the Old Testament and what Jesus will eventually say to us in John through the writer of John that he came into his own and they would not receive him. Jesus, their desire is to cast him out. 
What then will the owner of the vineyard do? When Matthew tells the story, he tells it a little bit differently. He crowdsources the answer. He asked these men that are standing there in their pharisaical wardrobes, what's supposed to happen? And they're furious. That's the tone. He will destroy those terrible men and he will lease the land to other farmers who will give him his fruit at the harvest. That's y'all. Jesus doesn't... Mark, when Mark gives his account, he lets Jesus tell the answer. He will come and he will kill the farmers and he will give the vineyard to others. He then says in verse 10 this phrase. Haven't you read the scriptures? Now, there is tone intended there. Because he's talking to the few people in town who are supposed to know the scriptures. Do you even own a Bible? There are times for us as believers where it's difficult. I've I've heard, had conversations recently about how difficult it is to be a Christian in 2023. And phrases are uttered at times in America, the United States of, that this is the most difficult time in history to be a Christian. I would like to point out that no one's fed any of you to lions recently. You read the Bibles? Do you even own one? The stone the builders rejected. It's become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. It's wonderful in your eyes. That, that Psalm 118, which also this cornerstone narrative runs through the scripture. There's a, there is a cornerstone. There's going to be a rock of stumbling for those who are in opposition to Yahweh. But it's a building block for those who are united with Him. We can read this story, and, and, and really, we can read it from a, a removed perspective. But I don't know that if it's, it's always good for us to miss these stories are told to people and this was written and Jesus said these words to the leaders of Israel but he said these words to the leaders of Israel for the leaders of Israel but also for us the villain is you and the villain is me If we're not the villain, who are we? Are you the prophet? Well, no, I'm not a prophet. I'm way too lax to be a prophet. Well, if you're not the prophet, and you're not the villain, 
that means you're God. We all have to wear this. Because try as we might to look at the nation of Israel and to see their terribly, overwhelmingly pious, religious leaders who were had believed their importance to be much more than it was. That's our souls. This was written to the Jewish leaders, but this should pierce our hearts. Because when we go into combative situations with God calling us to be in this world, light in darkness, a tad bit of hope in what seems to be hopeless, if that's what we're supposed to be and we are not being that, then we are functioning as the villain. The cornerstone bears the weight of a building. I don't know if you've realized. I'm not really an architect. But it bears the weight of a building and is the standard that you use to level and measure and orient the entire structure. The integrity and the direction of the building depend upon the cornerstone. And a lot of other building stuff depends on the cornerstone too. Jesus is the cornerstone by which we measure the way that our lives are to function. Our obedience to His Word and how His Word aligns us with Him, the parts that we like and the parts that we don't like. When we are consistently making the parts of the Bible we don't like because they expect something of us symbolic, that happens. If it's just symbol, symbol, symbol and there's never any expectation for the way that you live, you don't need a Bible. You've already got you. If all that I think is what I think, that's not helpful. It flushes out in verse 12. They're looking for a way to arrest him. But they feared the crowd because they knew that he'd spoken this parable against him against them so they left him and they went away every interaction that Jesus has from this point forward is an attempt to challenge him an attempt to undo him as the heir the cornerstone here is Jesus it, it's, it is this incredible irony in the text that the one who is going to be murdered it will be through his death that actual life comes it will be through the fact that he is broken and murdered that the real work of going showing what God would really have the world to be begins we we see that through the death and the resurrection of Jesus through that, Jesus shows the whole totality of the world that hope is in Him. 
The point of Israel was to take them toward that. But here, Jesus is saying, this is where life can be found. This is where life should be. And the goal of each and every believer in this room, when we wrestle with the truth of Scripture and the hope that is Jesus, we should be directing toward that. We don't direct toward that because we're awesome, because we're just not. We don't direct toward that because we're friendly, because that doesn't always carry through. What if someone is unfriendly to you? We direct toward that. We, we live our lives toward that. We invite people to interact with Jesus through that. And we expect God to do something because of that. Through Jesus, His broken body, His shed blood, through His being crushed, so that life could be present in this world. So there could be hope in front of people who are hopeless. So my hope for us this morning, we will realize as we take communion in just a moment, as we do here as a church weekly, for those of us as belie- who are believers, would we see the unique thing that has taken place in that the broken body of Jesus, His death, has given me the possibility to show His life. That life is an option. People who are moving in that direction. So we're going to take communion in just a moment. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads. If, if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, again, I'm glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. If you would like to be a believer in Jesus, I want to talk to you about that. That barcode that we scanned earlier, you can scan that. You, we can schedule a time. I'm going to be in the back right-hand corner, my right-hand corner, let your left-hand corner of the room if you want to pray with me about that. I have two communion cups with me. I take two back every week. If you're not a believer and you want to try, place your trust in Jesus, I would just love to pray for you because I believe God does work in rooms and spaces like this. If you are a believer... Jared is really, really great about reminding us to investigate our hearts. I would go as far as to investigate the aspects of our heart that are far from the Lord. Where we are trying to be our own God and trying to run our own world when he said that's not the point of your life. If there's someone in the room you need to forgive, do that. For us as believers, we take the cup weekly. We eat of the bread weekly. Because we realize that the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus are our only hope. We trust you, Lord, for your work that you're doing in, our, in this space as a church and the way that you love us. We ask that you will work this morning in Jesus' name. We stand together.